welcome back to the G3 podcast. Today we have an interesting conversation to discuss the subject of worship as we continue to think through the aspects and the various different component parts of worship. And having just completed a conference that was devoted completely to the subject of worship, today we're going to discuss how we worship and some key influences to how we've arrived at where we are presently within the evangelical context. And I'm very excited today to welcome my fellow pastor, Matt Sykes, who serves with me here at Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, as the pastor of worship and discipleship. He's also finishing up a PhD in the School of Church Music and Worship at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So welcome to the G3 podcast, Matt Sykes. Thank you, Josh. I am happy to be here with you today. Yeah, so we've just finished this entire conference that was focused on the subject of worship, and obviously we tried to look at the subject of worship from various different vantage points and from various different angles, if you will. Some were, uh, some sessions were focused completely on preaching, while we had others that were focused on singing and the importance of the church gathered. And so as we think about all of that, it's quite evident as we look at the landscape of evangelicalism today that there's a lot of confusion on the subject of worship itself. So as we think about worship, how should we be thinking about coming together to worship God? What motivates us to gather on the Lord's Day to worship Jesus Christ? Well, I think what motivates us primarily is our our salvation through Christ alone. And uh, the fact that he has called us out of darkness and called us into his kingdom uh, to be his children, to be his people, uh, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, and so when we understand and we begin to understand the magnitude of what that really means, uh, we, we, we know that we must worship him uh, in response to that. We have this privilege of worship. So we've been called, as you mentioned, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we have this grand privilege of worshiping God, our triune God. And, and I would argue, which is, again, a conversation for a different day, but I would argue that Trinitarian worship is focused on and centered on Jesus. So as we come together as a church, having been purchased through the blood of Jesus, that it's in many ways, Jesus-centered. But you've spent a lot of time writing and reading and researching as it pertains to the subject of worship. And often we hear people talking about worship in, in a component part sort of manner. In other words, they will talk about how they sing, and then they will also talk about the preaching. They will talk about singing as worship, and then the preaching as, well, that's just the sermon, so to speak. What are some helpful books that you might recommend just as we begin this conversation today? for pastors or maybe church members to have a more God-centered focus on worship? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are, are so many books that are written on this on this topic of worship, and especially as we look throughout history. Uh, so it's hard to come up with just a few. But as I was thinking about this, I, I think one of the, the best books that I've read that really just captures a biblical theology of worship um, is a book by Alan Ross. It's called Recalling the Hope of Glory, Biblical Worship from the Garden to the New Creation. Um, and as far as I know from what I've seen, I think it's a really unique in, in that um, Ross goes through the entire scriptures and the entire Old Testament and New Testament. And he, he basically 
presents every account of worship or every uh, description or uh, prescription of worship throughout the Bible. And um, it, it really gives us a thorough uh, biblical theology of worship. And he focuses, especially as he says in his book, on corporate or communal worship. Uh, because really that, I think, is, the, is what, what worship is <laughs> throughout Scripture. Uh, and he, he admits this certainly will influence the way we worship privately in our, in our individual lives. But uh, really corporate worship is at the heart of, of everything we do as Christians. Uh, and he really argues primarily in this book uh, that the essence of Christian worship is to recall and to celebrate the hope of glory, just like his, his title says. It's just uh, he does a, a, a wonderful job of of explaining his argument in the title and then and letting us see that throughout the entire book. And, and what he really re- means by that, I think, is uh, we we remember and, and we recall who God is and what He has done, and and maybe even more importantly, what He has promised to His people in His Word throughout history of his people, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and this really propels us forward. This is really the heart of our worship uh, as, we, uh, as we have this hope of eternity uh, and the fulfillment uh, and the undiminished presence uh, of the living God that we will be in his presence worshiping him in eternity and where he will be our God and we will be his people. And so that really is the, the, the emphasis and the, the way that the heart of what we do as believers when we come together to worship. Um, and I think uh, another book that's been really, really helpful in terms of helping us understand the connection between culture uh, and, and worship uh, is Scott Annual's book, uh, By the Waters of Babylon, uh, Worship in a Post-Christian Culture. And this book really uh, goes into, and, and Scott is my, is my PhD supervisor at Southwestern Seminary. He's written extensively on the topic of worship and, and music in the church. And I highly recommend uh, uh, much of what he, he, is, uh, he has written and said about worship. He's very, very helpful and he's very clear. Uh, but this book in particular, I think, provi- provides invaluable insights, um, like I said, between, uh, and the relationship between uh, culture and worship and Christianity and how we worship today uh, because of the of the cultural landscape that we are in right now, and his uh, his primary argument in this book is that biblically regulated gospel shaped corporate worship that communicates God's truth through appropriate cultural forms will have the most missional impact in a post Christian context. And so he's really looking at this idea of uh, of you know evangelism in worship and how do how do we understand evangelism? I think we get that uh, especially from uh, sort of this idea that uh, you know, revivalism, that, that worship should be about evangelizing and, and, and seeking the lost, which is very true, uh, but, but worship is far more than that. Uh, and, and so he, he kind of explores this idea, what does it mean to be evangelistic in worship? What does it mean to be missional um, uh, in the true sense, uh, the biblical sense of that word? And, um, and he, he shows us that biblically regulated gospel-shaped corporate worship really is the most appropriate way to do that. And then I'm cheating a little bit because I wanted to give one more book, uh, which I think is, is foundational that every Christian should be reading and should understand uh, is, is key to us, our understanding of worship. And that is the book of Hebrews uh, in the New Testament, uh, author unknown. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, really Hebrews is uh, our primary uh, book in scripture that explains the, the nature and purpose of Christian worship. 
And it really reveals the connections between Old Covenant and New Covenant and how Christ is supreme and he is central uh, in all of our worship. And he, he must be the center. And, and just you, as you read that through the lens of this is what worship is, uh, I think it really, we really start to understand the purpose of, of the book of Hebrews. As we think through the issue of worship and we think about the context of the local church, you hear so many people talking about an entertainment-based model, more of a choir-centered model, more of a congregational-centered model. Why does the church sing? Why is, why is singing a part of Christian worship? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one, one thing I want to mention, we really have to understand the distinction between worship and singing. Uh, we, have, we have come to this idea that they, they are synonymous terms, uh, and there are many reasons for that. Um, but uh, I think that's the first thing we must recognize is that worship and singing are not the same thing. Singing is a component of worship, a very important component of worship. Um, and uh, I think when we start to put singing in its rightful place, we begin to understand uh, the, the, the purpose and the, the beauty of singing in worship, especially. Uh, and so I think, first of all, we're commanded to worship. God. Uh, I think there are something like five, 50 direct commands uh, to sing uh, to God um, and uh, found throughout scripture. And I think that, uh, that this is obviously, you know, when we're commanded to do something 50 times in scripture, then it must be pretty important. Uh, and then uh, likewise, there are something like 500 uh, references to singing or making music, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, you know, we just kind of start there with the sort of this biblical mandate for, for singing. Uh, it's, it's what God has commanded us to do, but I think, uh, we, we can take that much further and we can say that we, we get to, um, and it's really a gift from God. Um, uh, singing really, it really connects our mind, emotions, our spirit and our body together in praise of God. And uh, I think that might be part of the reason why oftentimes we do, uh, we do use the terms music or singing and worship as synonyms uh, because this is this sort of holistic kind of idea uh, uh, of what we do when we, when we sing, this, this combining of these, these, all these components of our whole beings. Um, but I also think that music, uh, it's clear from scripture that music is given for our mutual edification. You know, uh, Ephesians 5.19 um, it tells us that we uh, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians 3.16, which is kind of the parallel passage to that, uh, tells us we teach and admonish through, uh, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, so there's this real sense of the, of the congregational nature uh, of singing. And, and in that passage, it goes on, both of those passages, the, they go on and, and they talk about, of course, that we're giving thanks and we're, we're praising God through our singing. But we can't miss the very first part of each of those, which is the, the congregation congregational edification, the mutual edification that happens when we sing to one another. Uh, and so that's a very um, important aspect of, of singing in worship. Um, I also think music is, is one of the most uh, powerful and uh, immediately tangible, if you will, representations of unity for a congregation. So uh, what I mean by that is when we are standing in a, a service of, of worship to God, as a church, and we are singing together. We are lifting our voices. We are singing the same words at the same time to the same melody or harmony in some cases as well. And we are lifting our voices together. And this is a very vivid picture of unity, which we're all called to. We're called to uh, be eager to maintain the unity 
uh, that we, we have been given through uh, Christ's uh, sacrifice on our behalf, his death and resurrection. Um, and then uh, I think finally I'll say that biblical words, which are uh, written in, in beautiful poetic forms and set to beautiful music, actually helps to sanctify our emotions um, so that we are able to understand what it means to express right affections to God. In the New Testament, we find the Greek verb proskuneo, and it's really a, a word that's expressing an attitude or a gesture of one's complete dependence or submission to an authority figure. And when you think about this idea of falling down before a king, and, and that's the sort of language that's being used as we talk about worship and as worship is described by that very verb in the New Testament. And so oftentimes you will see worship described by either this idea of bowing and submission or else serving in some capacity. But as we think about, as we think about Jesus being central to a Christian worship service, how is he central in the singing of the church on a normative basis? And, and how does that look as far as us bowing down before? Because obviously some of the songs that we will sing will be more joyful. And then some that we will sing will be more of a lament. And so help us understand what that looks like as us worshiping Jesus through song. Yeah, I think um, probably the most obvious answer to that is it's going back to the gospel, right? So the gospel should really saturate, of course, every part of our worship services, uh, the content of everything that we do. So we should be singing the gospel. We should be singing songs about the gospel. But expanding on this idea of, of the different elements of different types of song, when we look at the gospel, we look at the shape of the gospel uh, and what, what happens in the gospel, we understand that a, a significant component of, of the gospel is a confession of our sin, a confession, like you mentioned, a confession of our dependence on God. So it is appropriate to sing songs that are uh, filled with lament and confession of sin uh, and, and recognizing um, that we are not, uh, we, we are, this is not our, our permanent home. We are, we are longing for, for the time we will be able to worship uh, totally and freely uh, in the presence of, of Christ. Uh, but then I think if we go even further with this idea of Jesus being central to our worship services, uh, again, I'll go back to the book of Hebrews, which, uh, really helps us to understand uh, the, greater, uh, the greater spiritual reality uh, of what takes place during the corporate worship of God's people. And, and I think um, uh, one of the most helpful words that is used to describe Jesus in this book is he is our Leitorgas. Uh, he is the, uh, he is, uh, the ESV, I think, translates it like he's the minister in the holy places, this minister. Um, and, and it's really saying that Jesus is our worship leader. Uh, he is our worship leader. And, and the, the liturgos is the, is the same word where we get the word liturgy, uh, the same root word where we, where we, where we have the word liturgy, which, which is how we explain the way that we worship. Um, and so uh, this is a, a, a significant part uh, of what happens because we understand that Christ really is central uh, to everything that we do in worship. He, he makes all of our elements of worship acceptable as he's continually interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. He is our great high priest in the, the real, the true, you know, holy of holies. Uh, and this is what, this is what this, this, especially this section, chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, in Hebrews is, is talking about. Um, and so there's a real sense that Christ is present and leading us in, in every, again, every element 
of our worship. He is in our midst as we gather and worship him corporately. I think, uh, you know, Josh, you often uh, will quote uh, great hymn texts uh, of, of, our, of our faith. And I think one uh, text that really captures this idea beautifully and succinctly is Joseph Hart's uh, Come Ye Sinners, Poor Needy. And the last stanza of that hymn says, Lo, the incarnate God ascending pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. And so that really captures this idea that it's Christ's, he, he is pleading on our behalf by the merit of his own blood. We need to cast ourselves on him completely and wholly. Let nothing else come in. Um, and then one last thing I'll say about this specifically regarding our singing. So I think, it, uh, I think uh, Hebrews 2 gives us this really beautiful picture where the author um, says that, uh, I'll just read the, the passage, 10, 10 through 12. I think it just helps for us to hear it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so there's clearly this passage is dealing with talking about Jesus's humanity and the fact that he is a fitting sacrifice on our behalf because of his, he has experienced humanity. He has suffered like we suffer, but far greater. He is, he has gone before us in that. And so he is, he is able to be our, 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 our great high priest and our atoning sacrifice. But yet there's a reason why I think this, the author specifically quotes Psalm 22, 22 here and says that Jesus is really singing in our midst, in the midst of the congregation gathering, gathering. He is in our midst singing with us and making our singing acceptable to, to the father at the right hand of the father. Yeah. So when we think about the church's worship on a normative basis, the idea of just coming to watch people sing to you or to have a band or some special musician do all of your singing for you so that you can merely mumble the words or maybe just watch them sing, that's certainly foreign to what God intends for his church from a biblical Absolutely. standpoint. You know, we yes. think about singing. We are to be singers because God is worthy of being worshiped through song. And yeah. yet that also drives us, does it not, to the, to the aspect that, that our worship should be word-centered because we are worshiping God through words. And that's the way he's intended us to worship him. He has given us his word, Holy Scripture. Uh, we have verses, we have sentences, paragraphs, we have doctrine, we have the revelation of God in, in word. And yet he's called us to respond to him by worshiping him through this word-centered way within the context of our local church. So why is a word-centered worship service so very important? And why must we guard against some other methodology that might take us away from the, from the word? Yeah. I, th I think you, you said it, you said it well. I mean, we, we are, get, we are, God has revealed himself to us through his word. <laughs> so uh, the words uh, of, of God are, are what we live by. Uh, it governs. It should govern everything that we do, and most definitely the way we worship Him. Um, and so, I, I think that means that we we must uh, we must understand the, the the sufficiency of Scripture at its fullest reality. Um, 
So uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, uh, we, we, we should allow scripture to regulate or we should not allow, we should recognize that scripture regulates our worship. Uh, and every element, and so uh, we, you know, we have, we have this idea of the the regulative principle of worship, which developed in the, the Reformation, and uh, I think that is uh, that is so key that we 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 don't go beyond what Scripture prescribes for us to do, specifically as New Testament worshipers, what what it says for us in the New Testament. Um, but I think that that um, that beyond that, we we also must allow the sufficiency to of scripture to govern even our forms, the way we, we structure our worship and the forms of our worship. Um, because I, I don't believe there's any place where scripture is, is silent on an issue, right? Uh, we, it, it may not be clearly written, this is what you must do, uh, but we still, uh, we must uh, use scripture to uh, uh, biblical wisdom and, and biblical principles to help us to uh, know uh, how to uh, choose music for a service, right? What kinds of songs do we sing? Well, we go to scripture to find out uh, those kinds of things. And um, what, uh, how should we structure our worship service? Of course, there's no place in scripture where we say, here is the way you should order a worship service. We don't find that in scripture. But we do find examples of worship all throughout, as I mentioned with, with Ross's book, all throughout scripture. And what we see in common in all of those passages is, in general, uh, when it's being done rightly, because we also have very uh, many examples of wrong worship, uh, of unacceptable worship throughout scripture. And we know what happens when, when we see that, especially throughout Old Testament. Uh, but we, we see, uh, you know, really the gospel uh, the, the, the structure of the gospel shapes uh, the, the form of worship that, that happens. Uh, and we also see that in history, throughout church history. You know, this idea of, of, of recognizing God's holiness and this idea of confessing our sin before him and this idea of being, being renewed and reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this idea of giving thanks for, for who he is and, and hearing his word proclaimed and being sent out. Um, that is sort of the essence of, of the gospel. And this is, uh, you know, we, we see this sort of dialogue between God and man that happens in scripture. And I think it should really characterize our worship services uh, as well. And so I think we must use wisdom uh, and, and, and look at scripture and what scripture tells us. And we must believe in the total sufficiency of scripture for everything we do. On that point, let's dive into the the issue of where we are presently within evangelicalism. Let's talk about how we've arrived where we are presently, because you see so many different worship styles, you see different preferences, different models, different, you know, philosophies, if you will, of worship. So when we talk about being word-centered, yet we look at a lot of, you know, different stylistic approaches within evangelicalism, and you see so much variation. And you, you, you look at that and you see, well, they're influenced by something. What do you see as really the, the main flow of influence coming into evangelicalism in our present culture? How did we arrive where we are presently? Yeah, so I think uh, just quickly, I want to just acknowledge what you said, that, that we all have a philosophy and that something is influencing that philosophy. So it's important that we recognize that and we ask why, why we're doing what we're doing. And that's a really, really important step that we often miss. And we often jump to pragmatism. We do this because it works, or we do this because this is the way we've done it, our church for the last 50 years, or, or whatever might be your, be your reason. There's a philosophy. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that. And I think uh, 
with that, I want to say that I, there are many, <laughs> there are so many innumerable uh, reasons for why we are where we are today within, within the church and with worship in the church. Uh, but I'll highlight a few that I think uh, specifically uh, that we can, we can kind of latch onto. Uh, I think, you know, looking more broadly, uh, the, the culture, the sort of the Western culture and, and particularly uh, American culture, uh, we have this, uh, this, this uh, very uh, highly regarded value of individualism. Uh, which characterizes what we do. It gives us the American spirit. You know, the uh, you know, you know, we 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 work hard. We we do, uh, we do uh, things uh, to the best of our ability, and that's an important uh, important value to to have. Uh, but I think it sometimes affects the way that we understand worship and the way that we do worship God. Um, and because of that, I think we often think that everything becomes, or, or most things at least, become a matter of our opinion or our taste or preference, you know, what works best for me. Uh, and this really is, uh, you know, part of this is it comes from this postmodern uh, ideal of elevating experience, you know, to the highest good. Um, and that's sort of the determining factor for how we understand life and even our very identity. You know, my experience is what is the sort of the, the, the utmost thing. Um, and so I think that's a big component. I think more, if you look you know, more within the church specifically, so of course this is uh, what's going on outside of the church uh, has affect, how, affected the church. Again, uh, how culture affects the worship of the church. But uh, I think we see, especially in contemporary worship, we see the influence um, of, of Pentecostal and char the charismatic movement. Um, and these really are uh, the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, really they're heirs of the 19th century revivalism uh, that primarily we saw in, in America. Uh, and, and with this, um, we, we, I think we see a redefinition of worship. What is the nature of worship? You know, historically, corporate worship has been seen sort of as this prime, the, the, the primary means of grace that God has given us. Uh, and really worship is about discipleship and disciplined formation uh, that happens. Whereas I think more often today, uh, we see worship defined as this authentic expression of your heart. Uh, and so uh, we, we come to the conclusion that if, if we don't have a certain kind of emotional experience in worship, in our worship services, then we question whether we have truly worshiped God or we disregard it. Uh, we say we haven't worshiped God or that person hasn't worshiped because they aren't physically showing uh, some kind of outward emotional experience. Um, and we could say lots more about that, but I think that's a, that's a really important uh, component we cannot, we cannot overlook. And a lot of how we do worship, even... I would say even in more conservative cessationist uh, church circles, we see we see the influence uh, of charismatic and, and Pentecostal uh, Christianity, um, and so uh, I think that's something we have to recognize. And I'm actually writing on this area in particular, and sort of this idea of music becoming a new sacrament. Uh, we see music as being sort of a the conduit in which we experience God's presence. Um, and then I think another way that I think is really important that we should not overlook in, in our circles, uh, uh, which is this, I think this is everyone, but especially for, for us in more reformed uh, circles, is that this, this idea of divorcing content from form. Um, you know, we have, I think, in, in the reformed tradition, uh, we see this uh, recovery in our, in our present day of, of uh, the importance of singing the gospel, Right. And having like we talked about earlier, having word centered worship and, of course, our doctrine, uh, you know, being 
absolutely important. Our theology, looking to histor- uh, history and, and how the, our, our church fathers have, have explained uh, the faith, um, and, you know, connecting ourselves more to, uh, to orthodoxy, okay? So this is an important, important component of that. And I think, but, but I think we do that sometimes at the expense of recognizing, um, you know, the, the historic practice of worship and uh, uh, what we call orthopraxy um, and even orthopathy, the rightly ordered love of God. And this is something that we inherit, I think, from the history of church as well. Um, and I think, again, this is where we're being a product of our time, um, of our culture, uh, our cultural influences, and without even realizing it, you know, there's this whole, um, you know, uh, this whole idea of, of uh I think, therefore, I am the Descartes idea. I think, therefore, I am thinking. We are thinking things primarily, or, or um, one one author describes it as being we're heads on a stick, and so we think of our brain sort of as being separated from our our hearts and our emotions, um, and so I think this begins to affect uh, how we how we worship. So if we have our doctrine right, we have our content right, um, then uh, what we sing, as long as the words are correct. And, you know, what we sing and how we sing it is just a matter of preference and taste. Um, but uh, again, I think throughout history, church history, we see this idea that our theology really informs our doxology or our worship. Uh, and then our doxology, our worship of God, it, it then informs our theology or the way we believe and how we think of God. Uh, the church, early church fathers had, had a, a term for this, a Latin term, lex orandi, lex credendi, which means you know, I, the, uh, the law of prayer is the law of belief. Uh, and, and prayer sort of being this catch-all uh, idea for worship. Um, everything we do in worship, they really saw the entire worship service as, as prayer offered to God. And so, uh, you know, what, what, they, what they understood was that the way we worship affects how we believe. And so we, we know that the, our theology affects how we worship. But often we overlook how our our worship then reinforces or even contradicts what we believe about God and begins to change that. Um, and I think, you know, uh, to give a modern day uh, theologian example of this, uh, A.W. Tozer, we hear him quoted uh, often in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And he says, uh, we hear this, this quote all the time. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that's a really important concept that we have to grasp. But I think we also should, should remember what he says just a few paragraphs later in the same chapter of his book. And he says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid for her silences is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. I think that's really important, that if we, we understand that the, the, the picture, the mental image we have of God will greatly affect the way that we worship him, and then in turn will affect the way that we believe.
looking back through history, they've, you know, again, theologians and scholars have summarized how we worship by describing both the, the elements and the circumstances. Okay, mm-hmm. so we have the elements. This is the, the what of worship, and then the circumstances would be the how we worship, right? And yes. so as we think about the how of worship, obviously there's going to be some freedom, right? And, yes. and in other words, um, when we start thinking about worship, and how we worship God. Obviously, we're not bound to worship God at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but worshiping on Sunday is actually important, right? So again, there's, there's a spirit of freedom that we can certainly discuss, but yet when we think about how we worship God, the influences, what's influencing us, what's causing us to make this decision, how we sing that song, why we sing that song, why do certain churches have say, massive choirs and others have more of a praise band? Why do some churches have low lights and fog machines and others have the lights turned up so that you can actually open up a hymnal and a Bible and read and see? So we are consistently making decisions as we come to worship and as we order our worship, but we need to be consistently evaluating those decisions based on the text of Scripture and trying to mark out how we can uh, influence our worship. And we need to be consistently influencing our worship by the Word. Again, I argued uh, in this past G3 in my sermon that on a weekly basis that the culture is seeking to deform our worship. So it's not that we should walk around with this badge of honor as if we are somehow reformed, but we need to be consistently being reformed because of the fact that the culture is consistently deforming us. And so we have shows galore that have, uh, you know, a stage and a microphone and a vocalist, and they're singing all these songs. And then we look at the church and we can see a mirror image of that. What we see happening with American Idol or America's Got Talent, we suddenly see that displayed in the church. There's an influence. So there's a cultural influence, and then there's a a vein, if you will, of a theological influence, as you've mentioned, the charismatic movement and, and again, the Pentecostalism from church history. So we need to be consistently evaluating why it is that we are doing what we're doing. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where we begin to get into trouble is when we just take those kinds of things for granted, that we think because the Bible doesn't prescribe the forms exactly, that we have total freedom to just choose whatever we want. And, and, and we don't use scripture to actually to, uh, to inform those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we uh, wrap up this conversation today, Matt, what would you say by way of conclusion, just to encourage uh, fellow church members and pastors who are preparing even this week to arrive on the Lord's day for worship, how should they approach? Maybe, maybe just share what your thoughts are on how they should approach maybe the the last 10 minutes before they actually engage in public worship with their gathered church, if they are able to get back, you know, through this pandemic era and social distancing, or when they do return, how should they actually approach that moment of gathering with the church? Should it be more of a trivial thing, more of a casual thing, more of a formal thing, or how would you sort of describe that and encourage them? Yeah, again, uh, let's go back to Hebrews uh, 12, uh, where it says that we, uh, you know, at the end of chapter 12, uh, the author tells us that we must 
uh, approach God with reverence and awe as we worship him because he is a consuming fire. And so I think if we allow that to govern how we approach the holy worship of the holy God, then we are going to come with an attitude of reverence and awe. And, and I don't think we, you, we need uh, uh, long definitions of what that means. Uh, we, we understand, especially if you read the rest of the book of Hebrews and the rest of that chapter in particular, you understand what, what the author is getting at. So uh, I would say, you know, uh, let's not come to worship, uh, you know, with just this flippant attitude that I can come in at whatever time or I'm going to come in just, you know, after the singing's done or, or whatever it might be. Uh, let's, let's approach the worship service asking God to prepare our hearts. You know, the Psalm 4610 to be still and know that I am God. Uh, so let's 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 let that be a governing uh, passage of scripture, which allows our uh, us to set the, the tone, if you will, um, to help our people to understand what they are about to get, engage in as they approach uh, the worship of a holy God. Matt, thank you for joining me for this episode of the G3 podcast. And if you're listening to this podcast today and you want more information on G3 Ministries or the G3 Conference, you can find out that information at g3conference.com. We have some upcoming events that you might be interested in, such as the G3 at Sea that's coming up this upcoming January. You can find out information at g3conference.com about that. Also, we're going to be rolling out um, some information about regional events for G3 that will be starting in 2022. And so look for announcements about that as well. And then of course, our G3 National Conference will be in Atlanta, Georgia, and that will be in October of 2021. We hope to see you with us and you can certainly find out more information at our website at g3conference.com. May God bless you. And it's always our goal with G3 to be an encouragement to local churches and to help church members be uh, ongoing, faithful, contributing members of their local church for the glory of God. May God bless you.